0: space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And that music might be familiar to you or might not be. It depends on if you, like me, got up every Saturday morning in 1973 or 1974 to watch Star Trek, the animated series, which was, in a sense, the second chapter in what now is the sprawling saga of the Star Trek franchise of Gene Roddenberry. On today's morning show... Uh, I am reconnecting once again with Star Trek expert extraordinaire Mark Cushman, uh, with whom I initially connected uh, about his first three books called These Are the Voyages, which painstakingly trace the creation of each and every episode of Star Trek, the original series. Uh, In his next series of three books, which are every bit as interesting, they are also called These Are the Voyages, but subtitled Gene Roddenberry, and uh, Star Trek in the 1970s, that really crucial decade in which Gene Roddenberry had to, in a sense, figure out what to do next in the wake of the cancellation of his beloved Star Trek the original series. And uh, he knew on some level that there was more life to be had from the story of Star Trek, but just how that was going to happen, uh, nobody knew for certain. And, of course, it was not just up to Gene Roddenberry but up to the powers that be at Paramount and NBC and so on. And uh, it ended up being a complicated uh, decade, uh, as Mark Cushman uh, details in his really interesting books, uh, a, d- a decade that was uh, punishing on Gene Roddenberry emotionally and physically and, uh, and otherwise. Uh, but, of course, we all know now that uh, Star Trek eventually did uh, become resurrected, and in a very exciting fashion indeed, and of course is still with us all these many years later. Again, these uh, latest three books by Mark Cushman, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry on Star Trek in the 1970s, are, are published by Jacobs Brown Press. And Mark Cushman, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Hi, Greg. It's great to be back.
0: Glad we can have this conversation. Our most recent conversation kind of set the stage for these three books by kind of giving an overview of Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry. In this particular conversation, uh, we're going to dig into some of the specifics of what ensued during this uh, important decade. One thing we should just say right off the bat, although I don't want us to spend too much time on this, but Gene Roddenberry was very busy during the 1970s, trying to get other projects off the ground, uh, other projects that had nothing directly to do with Star Trek at all. Uh, he was never really all that successful, and you chronicle uh, all of these uh, various efforts. Uh, I just wonder if you would uh, be able to uh, point to one or two of these projects outside of Star Trek that really were promising and perhaps deserved to have more success than they Ultimately gained.
1: Sure. Well, when Star Trek got canceled in '69, uh, Gene was burnt out as far as dealing with the networks was concerned. So he accepted an invitation from Herb Solo, who used to be uh, head of production at Desilu when Star Trek started there, uh, who was now over at MGM, and Gene went over there and developed a couple movie properties, uh, and and one of them got made, uh, Pretty Maids All in a Row, starring Rock Hudson. And uh, Angie Dickinson and a lot of other people we even put a couple of his Star Trek players in, into that movie, James Doohan, and I believe Walter Koenig is in there. And it did okay at the box office, but it was not the hit that they expected it to be. Uh, none, of the, none of the other projects really got off the ground beyond him writing a script. Uh, so he went back into TV in early 72, and he just had uh, a ton of ideas, and he set up um, pilot Uh, deals with uh, three different networks and was doing all these different projects simultaneously, which became Genesis 2, Planet Earth, Quester tapes, Spectre, uh, and so on, at the same time that he was doing Star Trek, uh, the animated series. So suddenly he went from being unemployed to remarkably busy.
0: Hmm. Uh, if we were to go on to YouTube or I don't know, other resources to kind of search out some of these non Star Trek properties by Gene Roddenberry, I don't know how much you have looked at those or how much of those are readily available, but are there one or two that you think uh, deserve a second look?
1: Well, I cover them all in great detail in this three book set, and uh, in the volume one, uh, which covers the first half of the 1970s. We cover Star Trek, the animated series, but also Quester, Tapes, uh, which, by the way, I didn't know this at the time, but I found out through my research and going through all the memos and everything else that uh, the ratings were very good for his uh, TV movie pilots, and all of them were ordered as series. Genesis 2 was ordered. Quester Tapes was ordered as a series, uh, Planet Earth, and uh, over at ABC. Uh, which was spun off of uh, Genesis 2, uh, and even Spectre uh, in 77 uh, with Robert Cope. uh, uh, NBC wanted to take that to series. And things got in the way every single time, which you find out when you read the books. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's such a complicated story, uh, the relationships with these networks and the things that can torpedo a series when it's in creative development. But there's a fascinating one that's covered in, I believe, Volume 2, which is uh, The Nine, where he was hired by this group in New York State who uh, felt they had been channeling uh, aliens who had visited Earth and were planning on returning to Earth. And these aliens wanted uh, Gene Roddenberry to write a screenplay and get a movie made that would prepare mankind for their return, peaceful return, they claimed. Uh, He didn't know if this was true or not. And he didn't know if it was true, if they were benevolent or if uh, they were trying to con us. And so he had a lot of uh, inner conflict about um, taking on that job. And one thing I present in, uh, in volume two of this series is uh, quite a bit of the transcripts uh, of him with the channeler talking to the nine. And his questions are fascinating, and the answers are quite often spine-tingling.
0: Hmm. I agree. It's one of the most fascinating chapters in, in, in the entire book, for sure. And, uh, and you certainly do explore uh, all of these series uh, in, in, in great detail, these various projects. I just wasn't absolutely certain if you had had the opportunity or and, and or the inclination to actually watch all of these uh, obscurities oh, yeah. from Gene Roddenberry's career.
1: <laughs> well, when you're writing the book, you have to. And uh, I'd seen them when they first aired back in the 70s, when I was a teenager, uh, I watched them again uh, more recently when I was doing these books, and uh, they hold up fairly well. I mean, you know, they're dated, of course. Uh, there's a lot of 70s stuff in them. But the thing I found most interesting about Genesis 2, Quester tapes, Planet Earth, uh, is that, and Strange New Worlds, um, is that they all have a lot of Star Trek flavor in them, and even Star Trek sound effects. And uh, in Quester, you, the lead character is uh, uh, an android who's been sent to Earth to save mankind from itself. Well, that's right out of a Star Trek epico- episode called The Assignment Earth. And, uh, and the character, Quester, is very much like Spock, without the inner conflict, but uh, he's logical, does not have a sense of humor, but is curious about humans and their humor and their, their conflicts and their fel- faults and everything else. And, uh, and Leonard Nimoy was supposed to play that character, and his contract expired with Universal, so they brought in Robert Foxworthy, and uh, they went on from there. But when I was a teenager watching these, I thought, is he running out of ideas? He seems to be recycling ideas from Star Trek here. And then when I did these books and went through the memos and his communications with the network, you find out that that's what they wanted him to do, because they all wanted Star Trek back on the air. Hmm. Not just NBC, but the other networks wanted it, too. They couldn't get it from Paramount, so they wanted something as as close to it as they could have to try to get the Star Trek audience to watch.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Mark Cushman, and we're talking about... uh, Uh, the first two of his most recent books these are the voyages Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the nineteen seventies one of the uh, one of the projects that you spend the most time on is of course Star Trek the animated series and this is how NBC after several years of effort was finally able to get Star Trek back on the air but only as a Saturday morning animated series and and a half hour long rather than than the full hour uh but it was star trek and i as a 13 year old can still remember how thrilled i was when i first read the news of that in tv guide and i can still remember uh getting up on a saturday morning to make sure that i did not miss the first episode and i watched them all with great uh, devotion and uh so I it's really fun to learn a lot about what happened behind the scenes in the creation of this uh of this series. Uh what can you tell us about any misgivings that Gene Roddenberry himself had about his precious uh property of Star Trek uh being turned into a children's animated series on a Saturday morning? Uh was he at all hesitant or did he dive into this fully confident that something of high quality could be created
1: he he dove right in uh... because he would be involved and he would have control over the scripts and he brought in his lieutenant dc fontana who a lot of people thought was a man. Uh, She got fan mail when she was writing for Star Trek and story editor on the original Star Trek, Dear Mr. Fontana. But it was Dorothy Fontana, who was a friend of mine, and I interviewed her for the books as well as Gene Roddenberry before he passed away. And uh, uh, I didn't channel him after he passed away, Uh, but uh, his his assistant, Susan Sackett, and so forth. And uh, from what I've been told by everybody and what the memos and so forth bear out, is that he was all in favor of it because it would not be as exhausting of a job for him as doing the original show. Uh, and and uh, he could tell stories that he was not able to tell on the original show. I mean, he was frustrated, of course, that you, it was going to be a 30-page script instead of a 60-page, so that limits the storytelling. He was frustrated that there were certain themes that he could not talk about on Saturday morning, but he had that same problem in the 60s in prime time. So what he liked is that he could have, had a broader canvas to paint on from a storytelling uh, story point of view. And, uh, and he was promised he wouldn't have the resistance uh, from the network and so forth and, and on and on. So he was not uh, opposed to it. And they brought back uh, a lot of the original Star Trek writers. So it, he never thought of it as a children's show, nor did Dorothy. And if any time I said that I, I I said, "What did you think about it being a children's show they they would immediately uh, cut me off and say it was not a children's show. it was an animated show on Saturday mornings
0: right and uh,
1: <laughs> yeah uh, so they and if you look at those scripts, if you look at the stories, they were writing for an adult audience. It was way above the head of most of the young kids who'd be watching at that hour
0: absolutely uh, it's it's a a really intriguing thing uh, in terms of bringing back writers who had written for the original series. And uh, one of the things you tell us in the book is that it wasn't just for the sake of familiarity that we know these writers and we know that they're good and so on, but uh, you tell us that it was also, in a sense, a way to reassure certain skeptical Star Trek fans that, uh, that this animated series airing on Saturday mornings was going to have at least some of the same artistic weight that the original series had.
1: Yeah, you were very young. You know, you were probably what? 8, 9 somewhere there. I was and,
0: I was 13 when it went on the air. But Okay. Um,
1: and and so you were less resistant. I was 16 or 17 and and uh Uh, I was excited it was coming back, too. Of course, I wanted it to come back in a different form, but at that point, I'd be thrilled to get Star Trek back in any form. And when we found out all the original cast members would be involved, providing the voices, that Gene and Dorothy would be there, that meant a lot. But yes, absolutely, they were getting a lot of letters and a lot of uh, uh, entertainment columns uh, making mention of the fact that is this going to be unfaithful to Star Trek? And by recruiting the original writers and having uh, Dorothy and Jean writing herd over the scripts and having the original cast, all those things were uh, ways of letting people know that the integrity will be there. This is going to be Star Trek.
0: You just mentioned the fact that the voices of, of nearly all of the original cast was, was part of the animated series, but it was almost not the case. And... Uh, you detail in your book the story of how this, this matter uh, changed quite drastically thanks to, in a sense, the intervention of Leonard Nimoy, who, of course, uh, was world famous for playing Mr. Spock. Uh, tell us what the initial decision was about which, which voices to include in the series and uh, what Leonard Nimoy did about that.
1: Yeah, uh, originally they wanted everybody. Uh, uh, Gene said, if we can arrange it to have everybody, we certainly will, and if they're all willing to do it, and they were all willing to do it uh, because they could do their other projects. I mean, Shatner and Nimoy were the two that were really busy, and they could be doing other stuff and record their voice parts. Uh, uh, separately in different uh, recording studios across the country or wherever they happen to be working. They did all come together for the first few episodes, but then they'd record separately, and it would all be edited together. Um, But when the budget was worked out, it was decided we can't afford everybody. And so they were going to go, of course, with, uh, with William Shatner, Lennon, Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, and James Doohan, which were the four most prominent characters in the show. But Doohan was a great mimic, and so he was going to do Sulo and he was going to do Chekhov. And uh, Majel Barrett, uh, Majel Barrett uh, was going to uh, do Yehura. Uh, she played Nurse Chapel in the original series. She was going to do Yehura. And, um, and Leonard Nimoy found out about this, and he said, I'm not going to do it. Either everybody comes back, or I'm not going to do it. And, uh, and so they had to find a way to find the money. To, I, think, I believe Gene paid for it out of his own pocket with whatever his salary was. That's what he told me. And um, I was not able to find a memo confirming that, but nobody has denied it or disputed it. Uh, so he made up the difference, and uh, everybody was uh, able to come back except for Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov. But they did give him uh, a script assignment and then gave him a second one, which he turned down because it was so much work writing for Star Trek, so many rewrites, that after doing it once, he didn't want to do another one.
0: <laughs> but so it was at it, least it a way to involved. include him, though, yes. It was in a way yes, to include exactly. him. exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I, at the time, uh, uh, Greg, you probably thought, thought the same thing. I thought, this is crazy, because I was you know, maybe 16 or 17, and it was rough sitting down in front of the TV at 10 in the morning on a Saturday when you're 17, but I was not going to miss Star Trek. And uh, a little easier for you at your age. <laughs> but, uh, but the first thing that hit me was, you know, of all the supporting characters, why leave Chekhov out? He was the youngest. He was the one with the most youth appeal. And, uh, uh, but they went by seniority. Uh, Chekhov didn't start until the first episode of the second season. All the others had been there throughout the first season, so they, they did it fairly in that regard. If they mm-hmm. couldn't bring one person back, it was going to be the one who had the least amount of sonority.
0: Right. And I really appreciated an interesting detail as well. When you talk about the episode that Walter Kinnick, uh ended up writing for the series, The Infinite mm-hmm. Vulcan, he told you very specifically that uh, as he crafted that, that episode, he made sure that the character of Sulu played by George Takei would have a lot to do because Walter Koenig himself remembered how painful it was, especially the longer the series went in terms of the lesser characters being shunted more and more off to the side, given less and less to do. And so he went out of his way to make sure that his friend and Former castmate George Takei would have plenty to do in this episode that he was writing. I thought that just spoke volumes about who Walter Koenig is and his his but, character. You
1: know, they're all uh, terrific. and y- y- You hear uh, George Takei knock Shatner a lot now, but uh, but when they were doing the original series, nobody, including, including him, uh, had anything negative to say about Shatner. I interviewed uh, almost every guest player who appeared on the original series for that first three-book set that you mentioned, and uh, with the exception of, of, I think, three, out of maybe a hundred, uh, they all just praised Shatner to no end as being uh, so gracious and energetic and funny and knowing his lines and, and everything else. Um, it, it, it was later when they were doing the movies that there was a bit of a falling out between George Takei and William Shatner, uh, not from Shatner's point of view, but from uh, Takei's. But, uh, but this was a cast that really liked each other. And they took care of each other. And uh, so Walter always f- felt a little guilty because when his character was brought in uh, for the beginning of the second season and remained for the next two years, um, he felt that a lot of the parts that George would have gotten, he wasn't getting. Anytime Chekhov was featured prominently in an episode – it meant that Sulu probably was not. So, yeah, he, he wanted to make amends, and he wrote a, a terrific part for George Takei in that episode. And and that's, you know, Walter is a, just a really nice person. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and I, I can't say enough about him.
0: Mm. One of the interesting observations uh, that gets made about this series and what it was like to write for it uh, comes in a chapter in which uh, about an episode called The Lorelei Signal, uh, written by Margaret Armin, who is one of the veterans of the original series, who was brought in to to uh, to write for the animated series, and um, one of the things that D.C. Fontana tells her in advising her on on what it, on how you have to write a little differently uh, for this versus the uh, the original thing uh, re- original series is that uh, when you write for an animated series. You have to be extremely specific. Uh, She said that you must describe every scene and every action in great detail so that the artists will know what to draw. It's so interesting because when I just kind of wondered what it would be like to write for the animated version of Star Trek, only half-hour episodes and so on, I, I just kind of blithely assumed it would be somehow simpler. But in fact, in some ways at least, it was more complicated because of all that they had to pack into those scripts, not necessarily the words that the characters said, but all of the other information that had to be there to serve as a guide for those who were going to be then drawing this episode and bringing it to life. Tell us more about that challenge.
1: Well, I've read all the scripts. I have copies of all the scripts, and um, including the ones from the original series and Phase two, uh, uh, which never got made, and, and the animated series and so on. And, uh, and I can tell you as a screenwriter that, that the shorter a script is, the harder it is. Because, yeah, the more space you have, uh, the more you can expand on your ideas, and you don't have to be as concise with everything that you write. Uh, you know, my first drafts are always long. And they're always at least ten pages too long. And then I go through and try to trim down dialogue and trim down description. But with the animated series, you really can't trim down the description because, as you, you said, you're, you're telling the artist what they need to draw. You know, when you're writing for the original series, you would just say, interior briefing room. <laughs> Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, enter. Sit. And then you start writing the dialogue. The set's already built. Uh, well, that, the same thing would apply for the animated series, of course, because uh, those sets would be already known to the artist. Uh, but anytime you're going down to a planet, you have to really describe what color is the sky, what does the vegetation look like, uh, what does this creature look like, and, and so forth. When you're writing for the original show, you would say it's a salt creature, a salt vampire that's kind of bulky and hairy and uh, has, has suction cups on its fingers. And that's all that you had to write. And then the uh, the, the uh, makeup people and the wardrobe people, and they they would get imaginative and create this thing. Uh, but when you're writing for um, animators, they want a little more information. They're going to get creative too, but you have to really give them an idea of what it is you see in your mind's eye. Hmm. So it's a matter of tightening it, uh, getting more story and as much story into less space, and describing all these uh, strange new worlds and things. Uh, that you see in your mind, and now you have to find a way of expressing that. Right.
0: It's interesting. I also kind of blithely assumed that those who wrote these episodes would not, in a sense, have to undergo the gauntlet of notes from the network and notes Mm -hmm. from whoever was charged with sort of responding to what was written and, and requesting changes for whatever reason. But it sounds like that gauntlet was very much in place. And in some ways, because this was, uh, whether or not Gene Roddenberry would admit it, this was at least in some ways a children's show because it was airing uh, on Saturday mornings with many children watching. And uh, so in some ways there were all kinds of additional standards in place that that writers would have to be uh, mindful of in terms of what would be permitted to appear on the screen.
1: Yeah, the network would give Gene uh, and Dorothy uh, their guidelines, um, which would tell what all the taboos were, uh, language, subjects, uh, things of that nature. Obviously, Kirk's not going to be as, uh, as frisky <laughs> in the animated series, although he did kiss one or two alien girls, but not like in the original show. And, uh, you know, some of those things you have to stay clear of. Uh, but uh, the thing, and Walter is a good way to illustrate this, uh, you know, when you wrote for the primetime show, any primetime show, you would write an outline and two drafts of the teleplay. Uh, and sometimes you'd do a little more work. If you didn't address their notes and you turned in your second draft and it didn't do everything they'd asked you to do, you owed them a free polish. Uh, well, and it's the same thing in the animated show. But with Star Trek, both the live action and the animated one, Uh, these writers often had to do three, four, five, six drafts of their scripts because Gene Roddenberry wanted everything perfect, and he would just give lots of notes and always be trying to get another draft out of the person, and they're not getting paid for that. They're getting paid for one outline and two drafts. Hmm. So uh, when Walter came in and he ended up doing six, seven, eight drafts of his script after the outlines, uh, and then they said, well, this was great, do another. He
0: said, no. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Another interesting challenge, and I had also not thought about this at all until I read your book, is the fact that, well, first of all, we should remind everybody we're talking about an animated series that was created and aired, first aired in the early 1970s. And so we are not talking about Disney caliber uh, animation or Pixar animation or, or any of the you know, really lush and impressive animation that one sees nowadays. This is fairly primitive, at least in some respects. Uh, and, and particularly when it came to the, the characters themselves and their facial expressions and so on, one just does not see all that much in terms of, of vivid facial expression on these characters and because of the limitations of this animation that meant that that expressiveness had to come from other things from the words themselves the way they were written and the way in which those words would be of course spoken by the actors but I just thought that was really interesting to think about the for all of the wonderful opportunities that animation offered up There were limitations, and this was, in some respects, probably the most serious one, that you don't have expressive faces to carry a lot of the emotional weight of these episodes.
1: Yeah, and Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana certainly talked to me about that, and I've got quotes from them in the book, because while they enjoyed the fact that the vistas could be bigger and the alien creatures could be more bizarre uh, and things of that nature... Uh, than, than in the, uh, the Primetime series. Uh, they, it was very difficult for them to write terrific dialogue that wasn't coming across with the same um, elements that uh, it was in the, uh, the film series because uh, you don't have the nuances of those facial expressions. And, and all these uh, uh, actors were so good at it. I mean, Shatner was just uh, the, uh, the emotion that would come out of him uh, in that, that show was amazing. Leonard Nimoy, Got nominated for three Emmys doing the original uh, Star Trek series. First time an actor in a science fiction series had been nominated for Emmys. Uh, and um, uh, and boy, you know he, he uh, you know Martin Landau had turned that part down, and uh, and then Leonard Nimoy was off it uh, because Martin Landau told me he said it would be too. I thought it would be too limiting, but then I saw what Leonard Nimoy did with it, and wow, uh, because Leonard, it wasn't just a matter of raising an eyebrow. I mean, you, you had to use your eyes. You know, when you had a frozen face, when you couldn't really smile or frown, you know, you had to find other ways to convey the emotion. And he was such a tremendous actor. But in the animated show, it's just the voice. And, and in the first few episodes where they all came together and recorded at the same time, around the same microphones, uh, you know, you've got a lot of that snap, crack, and pop. But in most of the episodes of the animated series, it's kind of missing because Nimoy is recording his parts in Boston where he's doing a play. Shatner's somewhere else on location doing a movie, and he's recording his parts. And so they're all being cut together. And so you don't really have that organic interaction uh, that the actors uh, look for when they play off of each other. Hmm. So it is missing. Uh, and that that was something uh, Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana were very
0: aware of. Right. And of course, it was just interesting to read about how certain writers would be told that this needs to be written in a different way. in a sense, the script has to bear more of the responsibility for really delivering the emotional heart and soul of this of this story. Another interesting thing you talk about, uh, which was a source of huge frustration. Uh, for both Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana, is the fact that uh, at least most of the time, uh, Dorothy Fontana would not be allowed to see rough cuts of the episodes before they would be finalized and then aired. And so you would end up then with an episode airing that would have all kinds of errors. There's uh, one episode in particular where she lists 13, what she regards as major errors errors that were made and errors that she obviously would have caught if she could have seen the rough cut before it went on to the air and uh, I don't recall if 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 that situation ever changed and where Dorothy Fontana was able to finally start to see some of these rough cuts before they would go to the air but uh, there's
1: there's a memo in the book where Gene Roddenberry writes to Filmation and he says you have to let her see this stuff you keep making mistakes uh, but Dorothy told me they never really did it, because everybody's working on a deadline. And, uh, and sometimes they're animating these things right up to the, the 11th hour. Uh, so they would try to let her see more stuff, but not always. And, um, and also, if they let you see it, you're going to ask for changes. And then they have to deal with making those changes, which is money and time. So uh, the the instinct in that type of situation is to make excuses and not let you see it. That's going to save you work and hassle. Uh, but like, yeah, she wrote a wonderful script called Yesteryear, where Spock goes back to Vulcan, and uh, and the fans would know from watching the original series that Vulcan had no moon. Uhura used to tease Spock about that, mm-hmm. <laughs> or she she'd say, "Don't you? Did you ever go out on a moonlit night with a young?" lady on Vulcan, Mr. Spock, and he'd look at her and says, Lieutenant, Vulcan has no moon. <laughs>
0: and well, then and she comes back and says, no, I'm not surprised. A, there's a, <laughs> yes. Yeah, There's a big
1: moon up there in the sky, because uh, these guys didn't know that. She didn't call for a moon in her script. They thought they'd just give her one, and uh, things like that. And They had some really dastardly aliens in one of the episodes uh, who arrive in a spaceship, and these guys are like uh, uh, wolves. Wearing spacesuits, and uh, they even have tails, uh, and um, they and the animators painted the, the sp- spaceship pink. And Dorothy saw that, and she fell out of her chair. She thought these these are very threatening, animalistic aliens who have advanced technology, and they're driving in a pink spaceship. And then she found out that uh, one of the animators was colorblind, so uh, actually the director the guy hmm. who who directed the episodes was Hal colorblind. Sutherland,
0: Hal Sutherland. Yes. Yeah.
1: That's right. Hmm. <laughs> so he couldn't tell it was pink.
0: <laughs> and it's just so interesting to think about uh kind of the culture where you know chances are the the people who were creating the Archie cartoons for instance or Sabrina the Teenage Witch or whatever mm-hmm. uh you know we're not we're not up at night worrying about these kind of details. I mean, it, there was probably kind of a, a predominant presumption being made that this is for kids and kids don't notice those insignificant little details. Uh, not understanding that Star Trek the Animated Series was an entirely different kind of program, really with an entirely different kind of audience in mind. Uh, it's, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost as though they did not understand the nature of this program?
1: Well, you know, everybody's got their own expertise, and, and most animators are in it because they love animating. And so for them, it's uh, they get turned on by a certain thing that they do in the drawing or a certain color that they choose to use. They're not thinking of it in terms of, the way Gene Roddenberry would, or Dorothy Fontana would, or most Star Trek fans would, unless they themselves are a Star Trek fan. So, uh, you know, they can get turned on by a certain uh, color and think, boy, that's really going to pop. But they're not thinking in terms of, is this right for the personality of the person that's flying the spaceship? Is this right for Star Trek? Mm. So that's where you need, uh, need the producer, and the director to keep control over that situation, but when the director is colorblind, and the producer is not being allowed to see the footage before it airs, things are going to slip by.
0: Right. Um,
1: you know what's a shame, Greg, is is they've got this great soundtrack uh, of the original cast, some of which are no longer with us, with scripts written by Star Trek writers and and uh, and covered by uh, Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana. And I don't understand why Paramount doesn't reanimate the original series and give us those facial nuances and give us. Uh, I mean, they, they can make this look like real people. It doesn't have to look like 1973, 74 filmation animation.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree uh, more. I, I've, and thought, and I, I've thought. I've thought. Ab- one day they'll do that. Yeah, I've thought about that many, many times that I would love to see these episodes redone visually uh, in the same way, of course, that the original series. Uh, many of the sequences involving the USS Enterprise flying through mm-hmm. space and and uh, orbiting planets and so on, that those, those special effects have been updated to spectacular fashion, uh, and uh, I would love to see a, a similar uh, reworking of this animated series. I wanted to also mention something that made this program very distinct at one point in, in this volume you say that Star Trek the animated series was surely the only Saturday morning series whose scripts were vetted by scientists <laughs> I mean in That's the same right. way that the original series was vetted by scientific advisors as well even right. this half hour show on Saturday morning was vetted by scientific advisors
1: yeah Gene would send uh, the, the treatments and the scripts over to the RAND Corporation he would send them over to NASA to JPL which was a division of NASA, and, uh, uh, and they would read these things happily for free, uh, no charge, uh, and, and they would give him notes. And so, yeah, it, um, I mean, Star Trek really was the only primetime show that was doing that. Irwin Allen certainly didn't send his scripts over to NASA, <laughs> 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 nor would they probably have read them for free. Right. Uh, and uh, so Star Trek was the first show to do that. And then when the animated series came along, uh, you know, he approached them and they said, they said, absolutely. And they did the same thing with the movies. Hmm. Uh, in volume three of this uh, series, uh, we have a lot of memos from NASA concerning uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Hmm. So they, they were always very involved. And also for that one, they, they wanted to borrow Voyager, the prototype for Voyager. Uh, uh there were two of them. They made one as a prototype, and then they made one and shot it into space. And uh, the, the Voyager that you see in uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture is Voyager.
0: Hmm, amazing. We're speaking with Mark Cushman. We're talking about uh, the first couple of his latest uh, trio of books. These are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. Uh, we should just add that the series we've been talking about, Star Trek The Animated Series, uh, you can go on Netflix and watch all of the episodes, the uh, uh, for the season and a half of of episodes that aired on NBC Saturday mornings, 1973 and 1974. They are uh, they are an interesting uh, part of of Star Trek's history. In our last uh, few minutes, uh, we need to talk about the kind of maddening series of events in the remainder of the decade in which Gene Roddenberry and Paramount and NBC go back and forth in terms of how to properly revive Star Trek with live actors and the original cast, Uh and whether or not it should be a new series or some kind of movie, and back and forth, and back and forth it goes. And it seems like at the heart of this indecision uh, and shifting priorities, seems to be a kind of fundamental uh, misunderstanding at Paramount about the property of Star Trek and the best way uh, to give it uh, a, a new lease on life. Tell us more about that. They never understood it.
1: And and uh, this is what Gene always said, and this is what Dorothy always said, uh, and, and Leonard Nimoy and everybody, and I agree with them, having gone through the... Uh, the vault and uh, looked at the memos and reprinted portions of these memos for everybody to read and so you can see for yourself they they never really understood it uh... they knew it was popular they knew it was getting more popular every year and it and it uh... it it confused them. They thought 79 episodes, this should have one or two years in syndication and it's going to burn out. And yet every year it was on more stations and the ratings just kept going up and up. And the conventions started happening and getting bigger and bigger and the merchandising boom. And so Paramount was loving it, but they didn't understand it. And they always believed it's going to stop at any minute. They, they, They didn't have faith that it was going to continue to grow. So that they thought, let's cash in now, because next year people are going to be off on something else, and uh, which is the way it would have been with most other properties, hmm. but not with Star Trek. So that's what confused them. And when uh, the time came to bring it back, when they just could not deny it anymore, uh, I mean, they wanted to make a movie for quite a few years, but they thought, by the time we have it written, by the time we make it, by the time we get it into the theaters, the fad is going to be over. That's really how they saw it. So they kept procrastinating. And finally, by the mid-'70s, they they knew, we just got to do this. Hmm. But is it going to be a big movie, a small movie, or do we do it as a TV series again? And that was always the dilemma they were having. And poor Gene Roddenberry, write a script. No, it's not big enough. Write another script. It's not big enough. We're going to bring in other writers who don't even know the show, and you're going to have to give them notes, and you see these notes in the book, and you just ache for him mm. uh, as he's trying to explain to these writers who have never even watched Star Trek that this is not Star Trek that right. you're writing.
0: In fact, you know, yeah. when when you when you detail the creation of of the series that ended up never being made, but Star mm-hmm. Trek Phase II, uh, which a lot of us who were... Fervent Star Trek fans had no idea that this was on the drawing board and and you know came pretty close to becoming a reality, but ultimately never airing. Uh, the the man that Paramount chose to be the writer producer for Star Trek Phase Two, Harold Livingston, had literally never seen Star Trek ever. I mean, he had right. no idea whatsoever of of what this property was was uh, was all yeah. about. Explain to our listeners just how close. Star Trek Phase Two uh, came to actually being made. I mean, how much within, was in within, a sense left on the on the cutting room floor?
1: Within weeks from filming. And by, by the way, I should say about Harold Livingston. I, I did interview him for the books, and uh, and have access to a lot of his memos, which I share, as well as everybody else's. And uh, and he did do catch up. Uh, when they hired him, he didn't uh, hadn't watched Star Trek. Uh, But he sat down and started watching the episodes immediately after that, as did Robert Weiss when he was brought in to do the movie. But uh, uh, they built the sets. Uh, They kept it faithful to the original series, but modified them just a little bit, as you would expect them to be for the second five-year mission. And uh, they modified the uniforms just a little bit. They were very, very faithful to the original series. Uh, They signed everybody up except Nimoy. Uh, He was not available. Uh, and and uh, so they thought they would go without him, and they signed up a young fella to be the new Vulcan on the Enterprise, uh, which was really a delightful part, the way it was written in the scripts. Uh, it, it really would have been a lot of fun. I agree. By and, the way,
0: I want to just ask you, uh, you do talk in your book about how there was a time when Gene Roddenberry and Leonard Nimoy were really at an impasse. Uh, Leonard Nimoy was really unhappy that Gene Roddenberry was traveling the country lecturing and showing uh, a blooper reel, bloopers from the original series that deeply offended Leonard Nimoy. And this was a real uh, painful rupture in their relationship. And there was a time when Gene Roddenberry really wanted to proceed without Leonard Nimoy. He thought that would be easier. And, of course, uh, ultimately the powers that be uh, talked him out of that. But uh, that's also fascinating to read about in your book
1: was taking legal action against gene and getting him in trouble with the uh the screen actors guild and and so forth and so yeah there was uh, suddenly some bad blood between them uh so it wasn't just a matter of nimoy's schedule and the favored nation policy that he wanted he wanted the same deal that shatner was getting rightfully so um but uh they weren't able to do it, and, and Gene wasn't really fighting for him that much hmm. uh, because because of these other things that were going on. You kind of see that in the memos. And, right. You know, so explain, and, and,
0: so explain yeah. the shift then from this new TV series to suddenly the thought that, no, instead we're going to make a, ma- a major motion picture. What yeah. signals that shift in well, they Paramount's thinking. They, they
1: had 16 episodes written. They uh, had 16 episodes written. The first one was a two-hour premiere episode. They were within weeks of filming. Uh, the last of the sets were being finished off and fine-tuned. Uh, they had a start date. And, uh, and, but Paramount was having trouble selling its fourth network. NBC wanted the series. They, even after uh, Paramount announced they were going to use this to launch a fourth network, NBC came and said, can we buy it from you? We will commit to two years plus the two-hour premiere if you'll give it to us, and Paramount turned them down yet again. And, uh, and so uh, they were having trouble selling the fourth network. Everybody wants Star Trek. They just didn't want the other programming. And uh, so the decision was made really quickly to pull the plug on the fourth network or push it off. It eventually came about, as we know, the United Paramount Network. But to uh, push it off and uh, take that two-hour premiere episode script and shoot it as a motion picture uh, because they had the the cast under under contract. They were paying everybody. They were they were supposed to be filming at that point, and they're paying everybody to sit around. So they so the, um, the head of Paramount said, "We got to get going. Let's take this episode and let's do it as a movie." And uh, and so that's when it switched gears yet again, and now we begin volume three of this book series, which uh, takes you through the making of Star Trek The motion picture,
0: which is a fascinating story in and of itself. And of course, when we understand this back and forth in terms of what should we do with Star Trek? Should we make it a series? Should we make it a motion picture? If it's a motion picture, how should we change it? How does it? How do you take a TV series and make it into a movie? How are those two things different? How are they from different worlds? And uh, that helps us understand the crazy turbulence of making Star Trek the motion picture. But that is something that we will save for our next conversation. In the meantime, we want to remind all of you about these new books from Mark Cushman, uh, a series of three. These are The Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. We have focused today primarily on Volumes 1 and 2. Volume 3 focuses on Star Trek, the motion picture, and we will be talking about that in our next conversation. And we want to remind you that these books are from Jacobs Brown Press, and uh, they belong on the shelf of every Star Trek fan who is the least bit serious about this amazing uh, legacy. Mark Cushman, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. It's always fun to talk with you.
1: It was fun, Greg. Thank you.